The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2011 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. Well, it's, it's good to be with you once again. Let me just, real quickly, I've got to pick up on what Steve was saying with regard to the, to the greatness of the kingdom, uh, that book. It is an absolutely magisterial exercise in careful biblical theology. And I, I always say that uh, uh, the one book I've ever read, I think, where if it came up for a vote, I'd be tempted to vote for its canonization. You know, I'm teasing. But uh, that book you ought to read. It's, as Steve said, it's, it's not, it's not a, a, an immediately accessible book. But what McLean does in that, and it kind of relates to what I want to talk to you about this morning, what he does in that book is trace the concept of the kingdom all the way through the Bible. And uh, he argues that the kingdom concept, the concept of God ruling on earth in a world that has been uh, redeemed by sin and in a world which by reason of human history is peopled by human beings who can actually know God aright. That is, they have watched God work in human history and therefore they can worship him all right, that makes sense to you? Uh, one of the things that McLean is going after, and I so appreciate it, and I can hardly stay away from it as a theme, but is, is this reality that ultimately human history is not about God getting men saved. That's not what this grand drama of human history is ultimately about. It's about God's glory. And God will be glorified when he honors his covenant promises and uh, wins to himself uh, in spite of their hardness a great number of people all of whom were entirely undeserving of his grace including the Jewish people he draws to himself and uh, and so this idea of the kingdom he just traces all the way through the scriptures it's really a remarkable bible survey it's a remarkable trip through the uh, the pages of scripture well in that regard, kind of in that regard, I, I, I mentioned to you yesterday, I wanted to talk to you about living in Satan's today in light of God's tomorrow. And I said yesterday that I, I, I'm afraid that there is sometimes a good deal of confusion about, about the world in which we live, or at least we, we don't appreciate, I, I, I think it's important to conceptualize the fallen world in the terms which the Bible lays out. And I submitted to you that I, I think that concept of the city and the tower pretty much distills the cosmos, the culture in which we live. And uh, I didn't say this yesterday, but let me just go back to it very, very quickly. Uh, if, if there's any merit whatever to my proposition that, that the city and tower is, is, is really deliberately descriptive of fallen human culture, and you can, in fact, sort of uh, distill it to these two wicked, uh, corrupted emphases. On the one hand, the city, which is commercialism, and this whole idea that man can find happiness in that which the world offers. And on the other hand, there is the tower, which is false religion, which will always fall, uh, follow, because men will find some way to soothe, to very superficially, self-servingly placate their they're, they're smitten consciences with false systems of religion and so on. But if that is 
the essence of fallen human culture, and I think it is suggested that that is by those, that concluding scene in Revelation 17 and 18, immediately before the, the, the uh, white horse rider descends, when, when that's wiping, wiped from the face of the earth. Uh, it's just interesting that as thinking deliberate Christians, working very hard, I trust, to discipline our minds with a Christian worldview and to see the world and all of its parts uh, through the, the, the standards of Scripture and so on, and, 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 and the tower, that is, if, if the tower is false religion, uh, we, 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 can, we can very easily work up a, a significant amount of righteous indignation about that, right? I mean, we can... We, we, we look at the, uh, at the false churches, we look at, uh, frankly, the Islamic mosque, we look at the, at the Hindu temple, whatever it is, and, and we, I think there's just sort of an innate moral revulsion, and, and we take some measure of uh, delight in the prospect of God finally putting an end to that, right? You not find that spirit welling up within you? <laughs> So we can sort of uh, easily achieve high dudgeon, if you don't mind, with regard to the tower. But let's think about the city. If all of these centers of false religion are sort of the physical embodiment of the tower, what is the physical embodiment of the city? Well, I'd submit to you it's the shopping mall. And uh, we perhaps have a little more trouble working up that measure of moral indignation when we think about the shopping mall, you know what I'm saying? On the other hand, and I, and I, I guess I can enjoy the mall, well, not very much, honestly, but, uh, uh, I, I, but, but my point is that, honest to goodness, I think it's important for us to understand. I said yesterday, I don't mean to preach my sermon yesterday, but I believe with all my heart that God is anxious for you to enjoy the good things that he has, he has uh, created for us and so on, but um, this, this giddy over the top, I, I walked into a mall uh, two, three years ago, but the theme they had, uh, they had, you know, chosen the marketing theme, and it was all over the place. These big posters, and it said, "Live to shop." That's that's pretty much the spirit, you know. Life is all about just getting, and that acquisitive spirit. You know that word, the acquisitive is the to be acquisitive is just this desire to acquire, this desire to have things. And again, I'm going to say. It's born of the mentality that somehow I'm going to find satisfaction in that. And I think it's, it's important to, to be carefully and knowingly on our guard. You know what I'm saying? To really watch that spirit, to really discipline ourselves, to on the one hand enjoy the good things that God has had, but not to find security and significance because life's man, uh, <laughs> that's backwards, man's life does not consist in that which he possesses. That's what Jesus said. And uh, again, I think it is, I always say that I think perhaps one of the most thoroughly non-intuitive or counterintuitive with regard to fallen mind uh, statements Jesus ever made, he makes it three different times in three different contexts in the Gospels, is the man who will save his life will lose it. You live just to, 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 to have, and, and your, your life is going to be empty and meaningless. But the man who gives his life away for my sake and the sake of the gospel will find it. And so that, that, that is the, the key. Well, so much so with regard to Satan's today. I think it's important to be... I think there's a biblical insight that perhaps will be helpful. That's what I'm saying. But what about God's tomorrow? And, and what I want to talk to you about 
in, and it's on the screen. I hope you can see those. Is these two models. Now, let me tell you, I, am, I have said to you before in these sacred precincts that I think Christians are over-fixated on heaven. And what I mean by that is this idea that there is some sort of a never-never land which is entirely different from the world in which we live. We just kind of float about, and uh, that's where we're headed. And uh, I'll come back to this. I, I think what ought to animate us and what ought the, 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 the hope for tomorrow, which ought to thrill us and animate us and encourage us and discipline in this life, is the hope for the kingdom, the kingdom where Christ will reign in righteousness on this earth. And I want to pick up on that, and, and I'm building largely on a couple of books. Now, you can find this in a lot of places, but if I, I don't have the books on the screen, but one is uh, Three Views on Premillennialism, and it's edited by a couple of guys, one of whom is Craig Blazing, and Blazing writes, Blazing uh, now of Southern uh, Baptist Seminary, writes the section on premillennialism, and he does a fine, fine job. And... Uh, and, and then the other book is uh, Randy Elkhorn's book, Heaven, which I think, again, does a nice job in this regard. And the point is that I think Christians, throughout most of Christian history, and even today, uh, most Christians are in the grip of a concept of God's tomorrow, heaven, which is really, really biblically deficient, and I would suggest rather crippling. And uh, it's a view of heaven which you and I do not share. But to the degree that we are colored or influenced by the prevailing Christian culture, we can kind of buy into this. So I want to set the two very carefully against the, uh, one another. And I'm using Craig Blazing's uh, terminology here. But on the one hand, he says there is the spiritual vision model. And... And this is how he describes it. He says, number one, now don't, don't, don't be off-put by this, uh, and I'm no great student of philosophy. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you everything I know right now and make up a couple things, I like to say. So, so number one, it is heavily influenced by Platonic thought. Now, Pl Pl Plato, that, that philosopher, that very, very uh, seminal philosopher who lived 400 years before Christ uh, in the 4th century, is... is Basically, Platonism is ontological dualism. It is the idea that there is some great gulf fixed between the, well, I was going to say between the spirit and matter. But what he really means is between the immaterial and the material. So there is a world of thought and ideas which is intrinsically good, and then there is the physical world. And it's most dramatically given expression in the human body. And the body is intrinsically evil. Now that is platonic dualism in its most simple form. It's just that there, that which is spirit, and by that they mean the immaterial. See, I, I react against it. As a matter of fact, one of the things that McLean does in that book that I think is so important is he says, let's be done with this notion that uh, the kingdom is, well, let's say it this way, back up. He says what happens is that the amillennialists have talked forever about a spiritual kingdom. 
by which they mean a non-material kingdom, a kingdom which is not physical or literal. It's some sort of abstraction where we, 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 we drift about in a world entirely different that we can only begin to imagine, and we, we, we don't even imagine it commonly. In other words, what you're conceiving of is very possibly a different one because it's a totally different dream world. That's, how, that's what they mean when they talk about a spiritual kingdom. Now, McLean goes on to say, let's be done with that because the fact is the kingdom is spiritual. It's spiritual in that it's generated by the Holy Spirit. And uh, my theology prof used to say, let's be careful how we use this term spiritual because we're, we're, we're giving short shrift to the ministry of the Spirit if we give that terminology up. So uh, he'd say, you know, if you, if you desperately want to work in a church and the church is 40 miles away and you have no car and God gives you a car, it's a spiritual car for heaven's sake. You can thank God for it. The Spirit is wrought to, to provide that for you. But you can get in it. You can start it. You've got to put gas in. You've got to change the oil. It's, it's, it's a physical car. That makes sense to you? And that's why I kind of re- react against the distinguish between the spiritual kingdom and the, and the physical kingdom. Uh, the kingdom, we're, and, and, and that's what we're talking about here, is the, the, the afterlife. So my point is, to come way back to it, this, this uh, approach to things, and I give you a quote here, and this, the reference is uh, from uh, Blazing's book on premillennialism, or his section, he says, historically, this model, the spiritual vision model, has often been tainted with a sort of platonic disdain for things material, perhaps seeing the body or matter as evil or at least imperfect and imperfectible. It is thus dualistic, and that's what we're talking about, viewing the higher spiritual world as essentially separate from the material world. So that's what I mean. This, this Look, folks, uh, I'll come back to this. I don't want to... I'll get in my next two point altogether, but the fact is that God created the world, and after seven day, after six days, He pronounced it good, and and the physical world is is not reprehensible. It is good. It is corrupted. It is fallen. It is yearning for create uh, for for redemption, but it is it is good. That's why I say that's why when you when you have a uh, uh, I think when you, your, your mind is disciplined by a, a biblical uh, worldview, you, you can, with full throat, praise God for the good things he has provided, the beauty of this earth and the, and the physical delights of this earth. You can delight in that because you're not, you're, you're not burdened with this notion that there's something just intrinsically ignoble about enjoying physical blessings. That, that's, that's, this, is, this, is the enti- this is what entirely animated the the monastic movement, the aesthetic movement of the early Middle Ages, and I I'm not I'm not quite as critical of that as some are. I think there were some good-hearted, right? I mean I mean honestly, uh, there were people who honestly loved God, but they were so taken with the what I think is the mistaken notion that the world is intrinsically wicked that they just wanted to hide in a cave somewhere, live on the top of a you know a, put a little platform on the top of a pillar and have some, somebody you know, throw up a loaf of bread every three or four weeks. And that was, that was how to attain genuine spirituality. I'll come back to that. So number one, there is the spiritual vision model, which regard, it's heavily influenced by Platonism. And secondly, and I've already talked about it, 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 it regards heaven. All right, time out. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing a dissonance in my own head. When, when I, I'm talking about the afterlife. I'm talking about the next life, whatever eternal life is. 
The reason, and I've even used a picture here that may be misrepresentative, uh, the reason I stop is because I think it is sort of intuitive to us, kind of native to us, and when we think of heaven, we think of going off to another world. I think heaven is a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be right here on this redeemed earth. I'll come back to it. But whatever that afterlife is, according to the new, the spiritual vision model, it's, it's primarily a spiritual entity as opposed to... Uh, well, yeah, realm of spirit as opposed to matter. I already talked about that. Uh, Blazing said, says in his, in his uh, book, he says, uh, this is the destiny of the saved who will exist in that non-earthly spiritual place as spiritual beings engaged eternally in spiritual activity. Now, in every case, when he uses that word spiritual, I could say exactly that same thing and rejoice in it if all I mean by that is by spiritually is that it is provided for and animated by the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he means. He means non-material. He, he means that according to this, this spiritual vision model, there is this, this holy, uh, this other world, this, this, this dimension to which we will be transported, which will be a realm of uh, thought and, and uh, uh, just sort of non-material delights. I don't even know what that, I, I, it's hard for me to explain it. Uh, I mean, to even conceive it. But at any rate, so it's, I already mentioned that, it's a spiritual, and I've got to hurry. And then, well, again, I had another quote that I took from his book. He says, this heaven is also free from all change. See, this, this, this notion that when you go to heaven, you're immediately, uh, you're immediately metamorphosed into this complete redeemed human being where there is no growth, no change, no learning, no productivity. There's just sort of a, you've achieved a level of, of uh, non-material and spiritual and sort of conceptual perfection where there's, it, it, as he says, it's viewed primarily as cognitive, meditative, or contemplative. Now let me ask you, am I making any sense to you? Hey, real quickly, do you find that inviting? See, this is the big problem I have with this. That's not a very compelling one. I'm not anxious for that. I think the best thing that a lot of Christians can say for the heaven they conceived is it's better than the alternative. You know? But, but as far as a place where anything that, in, that, that, that as, a, as, as God has created me that I would find delightful and productive and rewarding and satisfying, you just kind of float about Spend a couple hundred years, learn to play the harp, and then don't know what to do with yourself, you know? And uh, so, at any rate, that's one model. Now, let me go a little further here. Uh, oh, a third thing. So I'm saying, this is on, your, on the screen. I don't know if you can see it, but... So I'm saying the spirit... No, I'm not. Blazing is. This is pretty much his. And let me just say this, as long as I think of it here. The amillennialist, because he's, this is a book where r- r- the three views of millennialism, pre, ah, uh, and post, are all being represented and then responded to and so on. And so he's critiquing, he's, he's insisting that only premillennialism uh, honors a, a physical, the idea of a physical kingdom and so on. And the amillennialists who respond to him insist that this is bogus. They say, no, that's not true, but I... I think it is. But, so I'm saying that the spiritual vision model, it's heavily influenced by Platonism, this intrinsic disregard for the physical, which I think is unbiblical. Secondly, it's primarily a spiritual entity, so it really becomes almost a beatific realm beyond what we can imagine. 
And we kind of just discipline our minds to rejoice over the fact that it's better than, than hell, to be sure. And if God's going to make it, it must be good, but we don't find it very compelling or inviting or attractive. And then thirdly, very important, it's linked to allegorical and spiritualizing interpretation of Scripture. Why? Because the Bible represents the next life as entirely, not entirely, that's wrong, but, but, but very much a real physical reality with animals and, and, and plants and nations and continents. And, uh, and so every time you come to that, if you, if, you, if you have this spiritual vision model, does that make sense to you? You have to, you have to spiritualize that. Now, of course, spiritualizing or allegorizing hermeneutics, taking the Bible and finding a meaning beyond, other than what the words say, is the very stuff of non-premillennial hermeneutics. We've talked about that before. I think you're familiar with it. It's a very important concept. Everybody who has studied this acknowledges that if you read the Bible literally, you will be a premillennialist. You will believe in a genuine kingdom, uh, a, 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 a kingdom which is, uh, which is as real as, as, as the reality in which we live. All right, so I leave it alone. That's one one model is what, does that make any sense to you? And I'm rejecting this, and I'm saying to you, let me say it one more time, I'm insisting that this has prevailed throughout most of Christian history. This is the model of heaven, which has witlessly in many cases prevailed throughout most of Christian history. And even though you and I would reject it when it's laid out, I think we're sometimes colored by it because it is so pervasive in, in the, in the uh, Christian world. So let me go to another model, and this is what he calls the new creation model. And I'll take it to scriptures in just a moment, but he simply says, number one, this emphasizes the physical, social, political, and geographical aspects of eternal life. In other words, there is nothing in this mentality which is off-put by materiality. Fallen material, that is the fallen material world we find corrupted and, 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 and morally disgusting. Does that make sense to you? but not the material world intrinsically. And secondly, it sees, now watch this, and are you familiar with this word? I'm, I'm citing here, uh, actually uh, blazing again, but it sees the ontological order of eternal life. Ontological simply means the essence of things. When you, when, when you're, when you, it sees eternal life as essentially continuous with earthly life except for the absence of sin and death. That make sense to you? I tell people, I think eternity is going to be just a whole lot more like the world in which we live than, than we give it credit for. Uh, it is going to be, I believe, Eden restored. Now, in that, in that, in that uh, regard, let me take you to a couple of verses. Go, if you will, first of all, to Genesis chapter 3, where you have the account, of course, of the uh, fall of the human race. And uh, after, in fact, Adam and Eve are uh, tempted, and uh, even then Adam uh, succumbed to that temptation, and in Adam the race falls. Uh, that is, uh, you and I, I believe, sinned in Adam. And as a result, uh, not only did Adam, but, but his entire race bring upon itself uh, condemnation and the curse. Now, I want you to think for a minute what the emotional state of Adam and Eve would have been. Just try 
as, I mean, I, we can only do it haltingly, but try to imagine. Uh, I, maybe I've said to you before, but you and I, if you've walked very long with the Lord, you can, I think, could we not all, would we not all acknowledge that there have been moments in our spiritual walk when we've been careless and our, our relationship to the Lord was, was, was not what it should be? Uh, it, 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 I love that Psalm, Psalm 32. Remember the sister of Psalm 51? Psalm 32 is David's psalm of repentance, but he describes his spiritual state. As a matter of fact, I'll read it to you real quickly because I'll get it wrong if I try and cite it. But in Psalm 32, David remembers what it was like to be hiding his sin. He had sinned with Bathsheba and against Uriah. And uh, now he, uh, as he hid that sin for several months before he was confronted by Nathan, and this is how he describes it. He says, when I kept silent, and he means about my sin, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Now, that's David rather remarkably, with a remarkable picturesque language, uh, describing what it is. We've, we've known something of that, and we can contrast it. As a matter of fact, we can contrast it in the Psalms. We can contrast that to the refreshment right there in Psalm 32. He confessed his sin, and, and as a matter of fact, he begins Psalm 32 by describing what it is like to be walking close to the Lord. And who I've acknowledged, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, my point is this. That you and I, if you've walked at all with the Lord, you could perhaps uh, call to remembrance something of the emotional state that you felt, the emotional sensation of wandering from, from God. And then you can contrast that to what it is to have your sins confessed and to be walking in a fresh relationship with the Lord. And my point is, think about Adam and Eve. They had known what it was to walk in the cool of the day with God. They had had perfect, open fellowship with God. They, God created you and me with one ultimate purpose, and that is to know and enjoy and glorify our Maker. This is what Augustine, remember, talked about, that, that vacuum that God has created in us. Only God can fill that vacuum. Well, my point is, here they had been in this in this absolutely perfect spiritual state where they knew God as intimately and as purely and openly as he can possibly know. And now they are plunged into, into, into rebellion. They are, the, the, their sin has excited them in them a hatred for that which they ought to, to embrace and a, 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 an attraction to that which they ought to reject because of its destruction. And they are in this, this awful spiritual state. And now God comes. And, of course, in the course of, of the, the, the response, he makes a remarkable promise. And I want you to see it there in Genesis 3. I'm making a point here. In Genesis 3, uh, pick it up in verse 15, he says uh, to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he, that is the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head you, to be sure, will bruise his heel. Now, can I interrupt myself real quickly? There is a book. Did I, have, I, have I mentioned this here? I, I, I don't go very many places, but I mention this. It's one of the most important books I've read in, the last, in a long, long time. It's by uh, Michael Radelnik, who teaches at Moody Bible. 
and it's called The Messianic Hope. Get a hold of that book and read it. It is so, so very important. The Messianic Hope. The subtitle of the book is, Is the Old Testament a Messianic Document? Or something like that. And uh, he does just magisterially with this passage. Almost throughout evangelical scholarship today. The, the notion that this verse re- refers to a coming Messiah has been almost entirely abandoned. Are you familiar with that? You know what we're taught in most quarters today that this verse means when he says, I'm going to put enmity between you, seed, and her. This verse is taken by most to teach that women will forever be afraid of snakes. And, and I think there's something more going on there. And, uh, and, and this is the point I make. This is why I taught about Adam and Eve. Uh, some, some, some have said, well, wait a minute. We look back on that with all that we know and so on. We find it. Do you think Adam and Eve really could have heard that as a promise of a redeemer? You bet I do. And that's why I say you've got to understand. They have plunged themselves into the off, most awful abyss of condemnation and curse and alienation. They find themselves alienated from this God And now God speaks and he talks about the seed of the woman who will crush the skull, who will plant his heel in total destructive domination on the tempter. There is one who is coming from the... Adam and Eve knew well that it was the tempter who had had manipulated them. Now they're perfectly responsible, absolutely. But nonetheless, it was by reason of his machinations that they were fallen. And this curse that had fallen upon them now was, was, was in a profound sense his doing. And now they hear God talk about one who is going to crush his skull. I think there's nothing that Adam and Eve could have heard except for there is hope. There is hope. And that hope is in one who will, will be the seed of woman. Does that make sense to you? That's why this verse has historically been called the Proto-Evangelium. Proto-Evangelium. Proto-first. Evangelium gospel. And we've always taken this as the first hint of gospel truth. And Radelnik makes the point in his book that all of the promises that unfold. I don't think you can make any sense of Genesis 12 and the promise that God gave to Abraham that in you are all the families of the earth going to be blessed unless you understand that Abraham is bringing Genesis 3 with him. And he understands that the blessing is this seed, this woman's seed, and that's why he understands it's going to be his seed. And they consciously waited for that Messiah. All right, now, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, what's my point here? <laughs> the fascinating thing about this verse is that when God spoke it, he wasn't speaking to Adam and Eve. It couldn't be more explicit. Look at verse 15. It says, so the Lord God said, I'm sorry, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent. And, and, and the curious and interesting and instructive thing about this verse, we look to it as the first hint of gospel hope, the proto-evangelium, but in point of fact, God wasn't speaking to Adam and Eve. They were happy eavesdroppers. The fact is, he was speaking to Satan. And to me, this is hugely important. Because what God is saying, and, and this is where I'm, believe it or not, this is where I'm taking it. What God is saying to, to, to Satan is, this is not over. This material and physical and spiritual universe, this, this moral and physical universe, has been plunged into rebellion and decay and corruption. There is a curse upon it. But God is saying it's not over. And I, I think God is, I don't think, it says right there, God is speaking to the serpent, and I'm convinced what he is saying is, I am going to crush your skull. Now, 
What's the significance of that? God created this physical earth as the venue for his glory. And God is not in the business of being frustrated in his purposes. And God is going to restore this earth. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that the burning of 2 Peter 3 is a, is a, is a, pure, a, a, a purging burning. And, 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 and God is not going to surrender. See, this very idea that there's no hope for this earth. This is one of the things that, oh, here I go again, that drives me nuts about amillennialism is it posits all hope in some sort of, a, of an ethereal, abstract, never-never land where we'll go and float about. But, but this earth never enjoys a display of the glory of God. And if you, if you a, 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 the premillennialist, and he alone, is able to rejoice over the fact that God is not going to be defeated. I always say, to the amillennialist, the, the, the end of, at the end of human history, the score is kind of Satan several billion and God none. As far as human history, as far as what happens on this earth, God pretty much, you know, he just wasn't able to make anything of it, and Satan won the victory, but God's big enough to wipe Satan out and wipe the earth out and take us off to a land where, where somehow we can glorify God in, in a world that we can only dimly imagine. I don't believe that. Does that make sense to you? Satan has corrupted this earth, this physical earth. Go to Romans 8. With this we can be done. Uh, I think the immediate counterpart to that passage in, in Genesis 3, the very deliberate, and this, this doesn't express everything that God is going to do in, in redeeming uh, the, the earth and the physical cosmos from the, uh, from the uh, uh, curse of sin, but this material aspect, Romans 8, and pick it up at verse 19, the earnest expectation of the creation, the created world, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation, the material, physical creation, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God allowed this to happen, and at and the very dawn of fallen human history, he, he spoke a word which gives us hope, that's Genesis 3, then he says this, the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth bangs together until now. And so the point is that the physical earth, all right, now, where am I taking you? Just two simple points of application. Number one, I would just implore you to discipline your mind when you think of eternity, think of it in terms of an aggressive uh, productive society. It is Eden restored. It is this wonderful world which God created as a venue for his glory and your sanctified happiness, but it's been purged of sin. And the, the curse and death are entirely gone. And it's this happy, productive, I think everything I think it's safe to say that virtually everything that you find delightful and creative and, and satisfying and rewarding in this life, I, I think there will be some immediate counterpart to that in glory, in, in heaven. So it's not a place of indolence and, 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 and you know, uh, like I say, it's floating around on clouds. So number one, discipline your, your mind to think of heaven. I think it's so much more 
compelling and, and, and attractive and, and it will shape your life a little more carefully to look forward to that as opposed to some strange ethereal dimension you go to that you really don't find very attractive at all. And the second thing I would say to you is this, that uh, my, my theology prof used to say nothing more thoroughly shapes the way you live today than what you believe about tomorrow. And Jesus was unabashed in, in telling his disciples that if you're faithful in this life, you, you'll have the richer and more rewarding experience, if you don't mind, in the life to come. Your capacity to glorify God and to serve him will be perhaps greater. I believe, you know what? Uh, you and I are finite, fallen beings. Fallenness is going to get fixed. Finiteness isn't. We'll always be finite. We serve an infinite God. We'll never exhaust our understanding of him. Throughout eternity. You know, one of the delights. Okay, I'm done. It's time. But <laughs> one of the, you, you see so much today, especially with what's going on with the NASA program and so on, the shuttle program. You, and, and I don't know. It just seems like we're constantly reminded, for one reason or another, of the, just what seems to be almost the infinity of the cosmos. I mean, the physical cosmos, outer space. Well, I just have, have begun to wonder, maybe God, and it seems almost, I don't know, almost like overkill, you know? If this is all there is, this one world, and here we are, the whole stage of human history, and all that is right here, what's all that out there for? Ah, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that, but, but I just wonder if, as in, 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 in the life to come, as we have unfettered, our, our mind is no longer crippled by sin, and we can develop perhaps technology to give us access, or maybe, maybe in the resurrection body we'll be able to, I don't know, but I, just in terms of exploring the physical universe, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to spend eternity just, just going out there and trying to wonder at God's creative wisdom and power and so on as we just explore the physical universe. I, I think that's... That, Look, the next life is Eden restored. It is what God intended for us, restored to purity. Amen and amen?